everyone loves a campfire. You uh, build a fire and several folks can gather around. And of course, if there's a campfire, you've got to eat s'mores, right? We love our campfires. And then occasionally, we like bonfires. It's, it's a bigger deal. More people can gather around and feel the, the warmth of that bonfire. A lot of people celebrate with bonfires. But we understand there is a major difference between a campfire, a bonfire, and a forest fire. When you have a, a campfire or a bonfire, it is, it's controlled. It's, it's within the boundaries that you have set to have that fire. But a forest fire rages and you cannot control it. So we understand the differences between those three types of fire. Well, this morning, I want us to think about the church. And I believe that God doesn't want His church to be merely a campfire or a bonfire. I believe God wants us to proclaim the gospel in such a way that we are like a forest fire raging across the land with the good news of Jesus Christ. What I want to talk to you specifically about is a gospel movement. A gospel movement. We'll see this in Acts chapter 8. So turn there with me. Acts chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Most of the time I preach a Mother's Day message on Mother's Day. This morning I'm going to just keep on going through Acts as I felt led of the Lord. So we're in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, but don't let that make you think that I don't care about Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, all right? Uh, excited for this day. And we'll say some more about that a little bit later. But Acts chapter 8 verse 1. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Context here is Stephen was stoned for preaching about Jesus and he died. And it says there in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. So Stephen is the, the first martyr in the first century church. And Saul, who would later become Paul, more on that later, uh, approved of his execution. He was approving of Stephen being stoned to death. And there arose on that day. A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now notice verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy, much joy in that city. Let's pray together this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. You are majestic. You are glorious. You are sovereign. And what an amazing privilege is ours to be here, gathered as a faith family, in your very presence. God, help us to understand how awesome it is to be in your presence. And Lord, I pray that you would you would manifest your presence in a very tangible way in our midst. I pray that we would leave today knowing that we have met with the living God. Lord, I pray for transformed lives. I pray for a transformed church. Lord, I pray for a transformed pastor. That you would do a mighty work in my life today. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the timeless truth of Scripture by your Spirit. And fill up our lives and... Encourage us and inspire us. and May we leave this place with our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Acts chapter 7 is a longer chapter in which we see Stephen preaching a wonderful sermon. And the theme of the sermon is simply, it's all about Jesus the Jewish religious leaders who wanted to stop the advance of Christianity, who wanted to stop the preaching of the gospel, uh, were enraged when he pointed people to Christ, and so they stoned him. And Stephen died a, a horrendous death, but a glorious death, because he died for the glory of Christ. And in Acts chapter 8, we see the aftermath of his martyrdom. And it's interesting what we see in Acts chapter 8. And let me help you to think about it like this. Over in Acts chapter 1, you could compare the church to a campfire. Small group of believers gathered together, praying, followers of Christ committed, but waiting for him to move by his spirit to empower them to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 1, the church could be compared to a campfire. But in Acts chapter 2, The Spirit of God falls on the day of Pentecost. Peter gets up and preaches this incredible sermon, and 3,000 people are saved. Shortly thereafter, 5,000 people are saved, and the church becomes a bonfire. It's this blazing light for the glory of Christ, and more and more people are gathered around its warmth. But here in Acts chapter 8, the church transitions from being a bonfire to being a forest fire. The church, the the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria in a mighty, mighty way. And I think if we will study this passage rightly, I think if we will dig in here, we can see some principles that will help us to pursue a a gospel movement. We want to see the gospel spread the same way the gospel spread in Acts chapter 8, right? We want to see the gospel spread like wildfire, uncontrolled, blazing for the glory of Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to discuss the conditions of a gospel movement. What does it look like when the gospel spreads like a wildfire? What are the conditions that make a movement like this possible. And then I want to just 
make a few comments about the results of a gospel movement. What happens when the gospel saturates a territory, saturates an area, saturates a city, saturates a country? And so what we see described in this text, this, this gospel movement, should cause our pulse to quicken. What we see in this text should be our goal and our passion. What we see in this text should keep us awake at night, praying and hoping, listen, that we can be a part of something like this in our lifetime. I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, I would love to be a part, I'd, be, I'd love to be right in the middle of a gospel movement where the gospel is moving like wildfire in our land. Wouldn't you like to be a part of this? Well, let's study Acts chapter 8 together, and let's discuss the conditions for a gospel movement. The conditions for a gospel movement. Here's the first one, and you're not going to like it. The first condition for a gospel movement is persecution. Persecution. Now, that's not something you hear about on Mother's Day very often, right? Persecution. But look what happens. Look at the conditions here in this text. It says in verse 1 of Acts Chapter 8, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So as as pressure comes against the church, martyrdom happens to Stephen, and this causes the rest of religious leaders to rage against the other believers in Christ. The church is scattered because of the threat of harm, the threat of death, the threat of imprisonment. And so persecution, the pressure of persecution causes the church to scatter to other areas beyond Jerusalem. So you might say it like this. God made them uncomfortable for the sake of the lost. God made the early church uncomfortable for the sake of the lost. And here's what you and I need to understand this morning. God has no problem, listen, God has no problem making his people uncomfortable for his purposes. Let me say it again. God has no problem making his people uncomfortable for his purposes so that they will get about his business and do what he has called them to do. And sometimes for God to get us to do what he's called us to do, he has to, he has to make conditions uncomfortable so that we'll see our need for him, so that we'll get about the things of God, we'll be about the things of God. Persecution comes and God uses them to scatter them into areas where lost people needed to hear the gospel. And here's the principle that we all need to understand concerning the church. When times get tough for the church, listen to me, when times get tough for the church, it flourishes. Persecution comes. Fierce, intense persecution. And yet, as these religious leaders try to stamp out Christianity, Christianity begins to spread like wildfire. And they cannot control its movement. And we see that all throughout human history. That when people try to stop Christianity from spreading, it spreads like wildfire. You cannot stop the advance of the gospel. And so when times get tough for the church, it flourishes. A troubling moment here in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 becomes a gospel movement. Now, what's the application for us living in America in 2015? Well, if you look around even a little bit, you see that we are living in troubled times. 
And it's going to become increasingly more difficult to publicly profess Christ and to stand for the principles of His Word. There's going to be more and more hostility and ridicule directed at followers of Christ. It's happening now and it's going to increase in the coming days. And it's going to be, listen to me, it's going to get very uncomfortable to be a Christian. And in a way, I'm troubled. I'm troubled about the future and, 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 and the, 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 the society that my children will grow up in and my grandchildren. So I'm troubled about the trajectory of our society. But in a way, in a way, I'm very hopeful that as the church comes under increasing scrutiny and pressure, there will be a purifying effect in those folks who are the genuine article, the real deal, who are true followers of Christ, will shine brightly against the backdrop of this darkness. I believe that the church's finest moment in America is about to dawn. I really believe that. I believe that those who are the real deal will stand up, be counter for Christ, and will make a difference for the sake of the gospel. I believe that time's coming in our nation. Because every time in the Bible, in history, when times get tough for the church, it flourishes. I think one of our problems has been in America is the church has had it too easy. We're too comfortable. We're too, we're too prosperous. We're not desperate for God. We're not, we're not desperate to be about the things of God. We're not obeying God. We're not radically serving God. We're just comfortable, aren't we? But God has a way of making his people uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. It happens here in Acts chapter 8. You say, that's never going to happen to us. Well, tell the Christians in Jerusalem. Happen to them. It can happen to us. And so we see here that one of the conditions for a gospel movement was persecution. And I I believe that as as pressure intensifies against Christians and people try to stop Christianity, it's going to have the opposite effect in America. I really believe that. I mean, ask China. The communist, atheistic government in the middle part of the 1900s tried to stop Christianity in its tracks. And the church went underground and began to meet secretly in homes. And now there are millions of Christians in China, and it's growing by thousands every day. When you try to stomp out Christianity, it spreads like wildfire. That's one of the conditions for a gospel movement. Let me give you another condition for a gospel movement. This is going to get right into where we live. You ready? Every Christian sharing the good news. Every Christian sharing the good news. Look what it says in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about what? Preaching the word. The word there for preaching is not the word for standing behind a pulpit preaching. The word for preaching there comes from the word euangelo. It comes from the word to share good news. And so as Christians were scattered from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria... They went about sharing good news, sharing the good news about Jesus, telling folks that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. He rose from the grave, and he was mighty to save. They were sharing this message, and people were getting saved. And so one of the conditions for a gospel movement is every Christian shares the good news. Now here's what's interesting. Here's what the church in America needs to hear. Look what it says in verse 1. 
there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Everyone say all. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Why that detail? Why does it tell us the apostles stayed in Jerusalem? I believe this detail is included so that we will understand that the gospel movement in Judea and Samaria was not led by the preachers. It was furthered by followers, everyday followers of Christ. The apostles were in Jerusalem. This is not Peter and John and James preaching and sharing the God. These are just the, the, the members of the church who are scattered. And as they are scattered everywhere they go, they are sharing the good news. It's amazing. Now let me tell you why that's so important. I believe in the latter part of the 1900s, the, the church in America got into a hired gun mentality. And, and the hired gun mentality says this, We're going to hire staff members to do the work of the gospel. And they had very specific roles in specific areas. You had your preacher and your associate pastor and your music guy and your youth guy and your your children's guy. And you had all these these different staff members. And the church could kind of sit back and relax. We've got this, this wonderful staff to do the work. Now let me tell you something. Longview Point Baptist Church has a wonderful staff. I mean, we are blessed by the folks that God has brought together. I'm telling you, what a privilege I get to work with the staff we have at this church every week. So grateful for them. But I want you to know that proclaiming the gospel is not solely their responsibility. As a matter of fact, over in Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says that God has given to the church pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So our goal, our job is to, yes, we are to share the gospel. Yes, we are to proclaim the gospel as pastors and staff. But listen to me, we're not the only ones to be doing it. We're to equip you to go out and do it. And listen to me, we will never see a gospel movement in our land if lay people are not sharing their faith. It won't happen if it's just preachers doing it. Everybody... Everywhere you go, you are sharing the good news. And so here are the conditions for a gospel movement. Persecution and every Christian sharing the good news. But there's a third, a third condition here I want you to see. A receptive culture. Look what it says in verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And so it says there that With one accord, these crowds that were hearing the gospel preached by Philip in Samaria, they were, he was a deacon, by the way, they were were listening with one accord. They, They wanted to hear what Philip had to say. You might say that the people in Samaria were receptive. Their hearts were tender toward the things of God. It was good soil for the seed of the gospel. And I believe that when you have... A church that is flourishing with every, every member of the church, every believer sharing their faith in their sphere of influence. And that those conditions meet a receptive culture. You will see the beginnings of a gospel movement where the gospel begins to spread like wildfire. Now we've seen little traces of this in America. 
Do you remember after 9-11? When 9-11 hit for about three weeks, about three weeks, most researchers have said, about three weeks after 9-11, churches were full. They were doing things like getting together on weeknights to pray. People were scared. They were desperate for God, desperate for His protection, desperate for Him to move. Sunday mornings, churches were full. And, and, and for about three weeks, our, our culture showed a, a degree of receptivity, but that quickly faded because we got comfortable and prosperous again. I believe that as we preach the gospel into a receptive culture, the gospel will spread. So you say, Wade, what about America? What about other cultures that don't seem to be receptive right now? There doesn't seem to be a gospel movement happening in America. We see some, some campfires and we see some bonfires, some mega churches, don't we? But what about that movement of the gospel? What about seeing thousands upon thousands swept into the kingdom? Why, why don't we see that? America's not receptive. And, and there are other nations where we have people that we know living there to share the gospel. They're not receptive. They don't want missionaries. They're kicking missionaries out. They're persecuting Christians. So, Wade, are you saying that we should only engage receptive cultures? I want you to hear me carefully. The answer to that is no. We are to go to receptive cultures where people are getting saved and the gospel is spreading. We're to, we're to allocate resources to bring in the harvest in those receptive areas. But we are not to ignore the unreceptive areas. Paul said in Romans 15 verse 20, he said, My goal is to go where Christ has not yet been named. That's where I want to go. So Paul had the desire to go to unreceptive areas and be the first one there to share Christ. Because here's the deal. I want you to hear me carefully. There's a little missiology this morning, but it's good for you to hear. If we will be faithful to go to unreceptive areas and and plow that stony ground and plant the seed of the gospel, God will use our sacrifice to transform that area into a receptive area. So if we'll go to unreceptive areas and preach the gospel and lay down our lives to do it, that area will become a receptive area. So wait, how do you know that? Acts chapter 8. Did you know that there was some plowing and some planting of seed before Philip preached the gospel in Samaria? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. Philip had very speedy and very remarkable success. He scarcely opened his mouth without gaining attention and had not long proclaimed his message before people willingly received it. And many were converted to Christ. And listen to what Spurgeon says. What was the explanation of this wonderful blessing? Something had been done years before to prepare the way for Philip. There had come to that region a weary man who sat on the well at Sychar and spoke to Samaria's daughter concerning the living water. And she heard, believed, and was saved. And she, fallen woman as she had been, had gone back to the city to tell the men that she had met the Messiah, which is called Christ, In all probability, 
the work done by our Lord at Sychar had affected the whole district so that when Philip went to the city of Samaria, he found there a people prepared of the Lord. Jesus sowed the seed. Philip came and reaped the harvest. Isn't that good? So the reason we're seeing this gospel movement in Acts chapter 8 is because Jesus went there in John chapter 4 and planted the seed. And people were ready, prepared, receptive to the preaching of the gospel. And so here's what we need to do as a church. When we see receptivity, we need to go into that receptivity and preach the gospel and and bring in the harvest for the glory of God. And when we see areas like our nation that are unreceptive, and foreign nations that are unreceptive. We need to faithfully send folks who will sacrifice and suffer and plant their lives and share the gospel in anticipation of that area one day becoming a receptive harvest field. Amen? Now, if that didn't get you excited, I don't know what does. But I got fired up this past week studying that. Because receptivity is a condition for a gospel movement. Let me give you two more quick conditions. Supernatural power. Supernatural power, look what it says in verse 7. For unclean spirits, this is where Philip's preaching the gospel. Unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so it says in verse 6, they saw the signs that he did. What signs? People getting healed, and people who were filled with demons, having the demons cast out, they are set free. And so we see here power over demons, power over disease. So when you have... The church being pressured or persecuted, accompanied with every member sharing their faith, accompanied with receptive hearts, and then God comes by His Spirit with great power. That's when you see the flame of the gospel fanned into a forced fire. Supernatural power, the power of the Holy Spirit, power over demons, power over disease. And and I believe... Again, in our culture, we've almost become anti-supernaturalists. We don't think about the supernatural realm. We don't talk much about the supernatural realm. But you need to understand that God is God and He moves with power today by His Spirit. I've shared this before, but when I was in India, we would would do some ministry in churches and, and... And as was the custom after the service, people would line up to talk to the visiting guests. And I talked to family after family there in Tamil Nadu in India, and I began to ask them about their testimony, about them coming to faith in Christ. Almost every one of them grew up in Hindu families, and almost every one of them, almost every one, probably 90% of the people I talked to, came to Christ as a result of a healing in their family. Someone prayed for their family member in the name of Jesus. They were supernaturally healed, and they said, this must be the one true God. They heard the gospel and turned to Jesus Christ. That's power, isn't it? And so as as Philip is preaching, we see it accompanied with Holy Spirit power. There's one final thing that I believe is is a condition for a gospel movement, and it is confidence in Christ's promises. Look what it says in verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And it says there that, in verse 1, that those who were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, 
except the apostles were the ones preaching the word. Now listen to me. We see the church go into Judea from Jerusalem and into Samaria from Jerusalem. Why? If you remember back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we studied the words of Jesus to his disciples. And he said, After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now I told you when we studied that, that Acts 1.8 is a beautiful pattern for a church to follow. In other words, we want to be witnesses right here in our Jerusalem. Amen? In our Hernando, we want to be witnesses in our surrounding area. Judea, cross-cultural setting, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And so Acts 1.8 is a wonderful pattern for us to follow. But listen to me, Acts 1.8 was not only a pattern, Acts 1.8 was a prophecy. Jesus was saying, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so what we see happening here in Acts chapter 8 is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ. His promise is just coming to fruition. And I want you to know this. Hear me, hear me, hear me. As the church today, we have some promises to hold on to. Jesus said in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church. Matthew 24, it says that that all the nations would, would hear the gospel and then the end would come. Listen, the gospel is going to spread to all the peoples on the face of the earth. Why? Because Jesus has promised it will happen. And so if you think about natural forest fires, there are conditions, aren't there? The the land is dry, not much rainfall. There's wind that would cause a spark to to spread quickly and, and maybe lightning strikes and, and when lightning strikes a tree and, and, and a fire is kindled and the wind blows and everything's dry, the forest fire just spreads. And what we see here in Acts chapter 8 is we see the perfect conditions for a movement of the gospel. The church goes from being a campfire to a bonfire to a forest fire. May it be so here at Longview Point. May we be a part of a gospel movement. But very quickly, I want to show you the results of a gospel movement. What happens when the gospel covers the land? What happens when the gospel spreads like wildfire? Well, let me give you several things. First of all, people are set free. People are set free. It says there in verse 7, Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And so Satan had dominion over lives. But when they heard the gospel and embraced Christ, demons were cast out as the gospel spreads in that area. People are set free. I want you to hear me. When people meet Jesus, listen, they are set free from the power of sin, Satan, self, and death. When people meet Jesus, they are set free from the power of sin, Satan, self, and death. John John 8 says that that people will, will, will abide in the word of Christ because when they know the truth, the truth will set them what? Free. When people encounter the truth found in Christ and they embrace Christ, they are set free from Satan and and from sin and from self and from death itself because of the saving work of Jesus. Second thing, the results of a gospel movement, people's worldviews change. People's worldviews change. Look very quickly in verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They were mesmerized by, by Simon and his magic. And they paid attention to him for a long, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he continued with Philip. After seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And we'll talk more about Simon next week. But notice what happens here. People are mesmerized by Simon and I believe his demonic magic until they meet Christ, hear the good news, they're saved. And all of a sudden, it's not about Simon anymore. It's about Jesus. Their worldview changed. David Peterson writes, The Samaritans who had previously been captivated by Simon because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery were now captivated by Philip's message and by the Christ he proclaimed. I wish I had more time to talk about worldviews, but listen to me. There are some troubling things happening in our nation. Troubling things happening. On the, on the, the philosophical level, the worldview level, the, the, the ideas that are permeating our culture Secular humanism and, and naturalism and, and hedonism and, and all these different worldviews that are leading people astray. I want you to know, the best way to change the trajectory of America is to introduce people to Jesus. The best way, listen to me, the best way to change America is one person at a, at a time as they become followers of Christ. Because when a person becomes a follower of Christ, Jesus will change their worldview. He'll change their way of thinking. He will transform them. So the best way to to win the battle of ideas in our culture is to proclaim the gospel one person at a time. Do you believe that? Also, when a gospel movement spreads through an area, true joy is experienced. Look what it says in verse 8. I love this verse. After Philip preaches and and crowds embrace Christ, it says, there was much joy in that city. The joy from knowing you had found the truth. The joy from knowing your sins were forgiven. The joy from knowing you had a relationship with God. The joy from knowing you go to heaven when you die. They were filled with joy. They experienced joy. And when we proclaim the gospel, when people get saved, they will find joy. True joy, lasting joy, joy that is not contingent upon circumstances, but joy that resides and remains and abides because Jesus has changed everything. True joy is experienced. But here's the last thing. The results of a gospel movement. Church planting occurs. When the gospel spreads, churches start. New churches. Look what it says there in verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now here's the question. What do you call a group of baptized men and women, believers in Jesus Christ? You call them a church. A church starts here in Samaria. And everywhere the gospel spreads, churches start. It spreads up to to Antioch. You know what happens? A church starts in Antioch. It spreads over to Macedonia. You know what happens? Churches start in Macedonia. Over into to Asia Minor, as the gospel spread, churches started in Asia Minor. When the gospel spreads like wildfire, in its wake it leaves gospel, Great Commission-focused, Bible-believing churches, right? And that's the goal. That's the goal. As a matter of fact, I read a book 
years ago that, that moved me. It's called Church Planting Movements by David Garrison. And David Garrison studied what's going on in the world in different nations like, like, uh, like China and, and India where they're seeing some church planting movements happen. And, and, they just, and he describes that book, the, the, the gospel moving like wildfire and, and, and these villages that had no access to the gospel all of a sudden have churches cropping up in them and people preaching the gospel. And it's, it's amazing to see as I read that book, I thought, Lord, I, in my lifetime, I would love to be right in the middle of something like that. Let me see a, a genuine, spirit-filled, gospel-preaching, church-planting movement. Right? Not just addition, but multiplication as the church spreads like a forest fire. So what's a church-planting movement? Here it is. A rapid multiplication of indigenous churches, planting churches that sweeps through a people group or population segment. Rapid multiplication. Now, I want you to know, we, we plant churches. We've planted one, two, three, and we've got uh, three more right now. So we're, we're involved in, in, in six church plants. You've done that through your giving, through resourcing, through sending folks out. You've been involved in, in, in six church plants we've been directly involved in. And we're seeing addition. But the goal is that we go from addition to multiplication. That we see a movement of the gospel that just spreads across our land. And in its wake you see Bible-believing churches sharing Christ, making disciples of those new believers. So what happens when the gospel permeates an area? People are set free. People's worldviews change. True joy is experienced. Church planting occurs. I love reading stories of the great revivals of old, the, the great awakenings. You know, there's a, a great awakening in America and a, and a second great awakening and a great awakening in, in, in Great Britain. And you see the effects of the great awakening when the gospel spreads like wildfire. You see things like, a husband and a dad who would get his paycheck every week and go wasted on booze and would drink the family's income. And the, the wife and the children would be malnourished because they're not getting the food that they need, but the gospel comes into that area. And that, that, that dad who'd been wasting the family's income meets Jesus and is saved and he's transformed and he's set free. And, and instead of drinking away the income on a Friday, he shows up with his paycheck and he gets his family what they need and the family has dad back. Loving them, caring for them, pointing them to Christ. That's what happens when the gospel permits an area. Families are transformed. People are set free. In England, during the days of the Wesleys, it was reported that the gospel swept across an area that was well known for their miners. They'd go down into the earth and, and dig, and, and they used mules to bring the, the coal back up to the surface. And these miners were a rough lot. As a matter of fact, they had foul mouths, and they used their vulgarity to control the mules. They gave their instructions to the mules with, with vulgar language. Well, the gospel swept across that area like a wildfire. And many of those miners got saved. And work was delayed because they stopped using vulgar language and the mules didn't know what to do. They didn't recognize the, the words coming from, from the men. 
the gospel transforms individuals, it transforms families, it transforms communities, it transforms states, it transforms nations. And that's what we want to see. For the glory of God. And so let me just sum it up like this. In order to fulfill the Great Commission and reach our world, we need mighty, spirit-filled gospel movements that touch every people group in the world. That should be our goal. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're working for. That's what we need to be all about. In other words, listen to me. We don't just need campfires. A campfire is good. We don't just need big, mega bonfires. Those are good. They have their role in the kingdom. But our ultimate goal should be a raging forest fire of the gospel.